today's program, which we titled, Whoever Said the English Can't Cook. Uh, cookbooks from 1300 to 1700 prove otherwise. That was the title, and we have an expert on the subject who will give us some savory proof of English culinary expertise that goes back hundreds of years. She's Dr. Sarah Peters Kernan, uh, or Sarah as we like to call her. Uh, Sarah is an independent culinary historian in the Chicago area. Her research focuses on the production and use of cookbooks in medieval and early modern England. She has published in the Journal of Food History and was a 2014 Studies Fellow at the New York Public Library. She currently works and does research and all kinds of things and teaches at the Chicago's Newberry Library. And I know some of our members have heard her lectures on food history there and told me that they couldn't wait to see her here today. So Sarah, um, maybe you can help cure me today of my fear of English food um, ever since I was, oh, traumatized as a child, you know, when I heard that, that uh, what is it, four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie, um, whatever that was, and um, when, when the pie was open, the birds began to sing, wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? So I, that just, that was one of the most traumatic things I think I heard as a little child. And years later, when my dear friend Louise Athmarie uh, the, sh the renowned chef in Chicago was telling me that he'd been honored in England. He showed me a magazine from England. He was on the cover. They, they were so happy to have him there. And they, made, they had a special dinner for him. And I said, what did they serve? And Louis's wife, Sada, was there. You know, this little sweet Japanese-American lady. And I said, uh, well, you know, what did they make for you? And he said steak and kidney pie, and Sada wrinkled her nose and said, oh, Louie, it tasted like horse piss. So anyway, uh, I'm, well, aunt, anyway, with, when, uh, so anyway, gag me with a spoon, but uh, I figure if English food is good enough for the royal family, who am I to hold up my nose at it? And Sarah, would you come down, come up, and show us some good stuff about the culinary heritage from across the pond? Um, thank you so much for welcoming me to the Culinary Historians of Chicago this morning. I'm thrilled to be here, and I especially want to thank Scott for his kind invitation to speak. Um, he's been an incredibly warm ambassador for this organization, and I'm very grateful for his generosity and enthusiasm. Well, I've always been interested in books, but to be really honest, it wasn't until graduate school that I became interested in food and my interest in historic cookbooks was formed. When I was going through a period of introspection about potential dissertation topics, medieval cookbooks snagged my interest, just as my husband and I, as newlyweds and students on graduate stipends, were learning how to cook, grocery shop, and follow, follow recipe instructions. And as my love of cooking in real life grew, the history of early cookbooks became equally as engaging. These cookbooks from the Middle Ages and the period of early print are incredibly interesting because so many are unique copies. In a time when relatively few people could read and write and even fewer own books, some people took the time to write out a few recipes or even hundreds. The way they are written, laid out on the page, the drawings or images that accompany them, the materials used to make the book and other texts combined in the same books are all things that I study when I look at a historic cookbook. These elements combined with margi marginal notes, stains, and other issues of condition tell a story about a book. Yeah, you all see the spoon mark there. That's a pretty big stain. We can learn about the readers and the authors, and we have glimpses into the desires and aspirations of these individuals. And when you look at hundreds of these books, as I have, uh, you can begin to trace groups of readers and their social networks. And that's where things can get really interesting. The past is not so disconnected from today. Today we, will, uh, today we use cookbooks in many ways. Sometimes we buy them for ourselves, sometimes they're gifts, sometimes we get them for the pictures, sometimes for the recipes. 
Sometimes we have every intention of using them in the kitchen, and other times we intend these books to be beautiful coffee table objects. And this is all true in the earliest cookbooks. Cookbooks in 1300 or 1500 or 1700 were used in very similar ways as today. And this comes out in many characteristic of these characteristics of these historic books. I currently focus on English cookbooks. There were other reasons as to how I ended up studying English books, but uh, some really intriguing points keep drawing me in. There are more manuscript copies of English cookbooks than any other region in Europe. And while England was not the first to produce printed cookbooks, it ended up producing more unique titles by 1700 than any other region in Europe. Furthermore, beginning around 1600, women circulated recipes and entire recipe books as gifts and ways to reinforce social networks and familial relationships. Printers also created cookbooks just for women around this time, and this was about a century before women on the continent, specifically Germany, began writing recipe books and printers produced cookbooks just for women. Now, you might be thinking, why? English food is terrible. Why so many cookbooks? Well, this is a relatively recent view of English food, and it's not true even today. Uh, in the Middle Ages, England had a great reputation for food within court life. Uh, court food was quite standardized across Europe. And in the period, especially prior to 1650, and this is when France really experienced a great flourishing of culinary culture, uh, England was seen as the culinary tour de force in Europe. Their roasts especially were esteemed everywhere. And this combined with England's vibrant literary culture in both manuscript and print resulted in a flourishing cookbook culture. Now, uh, during one of my longer research trips in Europe, I took a medieval cooking class in a rural village in the Lakes District in the UK. And I point this out uh, because one, I'm always asked if I have cooked any of the recipes in the cookbooks I study, and two, because it's a very important way in how I interpret uh, what I see in these cookbooks. As you all know, cooking is messy. It's messy in a modern kitchen. Uh, for anyone who has experience with open hearth cooking, uh, you know that's a whole other level of dirty. Uh, there, this definitely affects the physical books. Uh, and what you see on the pages. There are stains, there are burn marks, there are creases, folds, holes, and some of these are due to the act of cooking in a kitchen with fire, smoke, foods, heavy utensils, etc. And this aspect of materiality has uh, surprisingly been missing from other scholar scholarly analyses of medieval and early modern cookbooks. So let's begin with an important definition. What is a cookbook? Now, unfortunately, this is extremely complex over a 400-year period that I'm looking at today. Uh, you have to use a looser interpretation than today, as many collections of culinary recipes were interspersed with household recipes for inks, dyes, cleaning solutions, etc., as well as medical recipes. And this combination of medical and culinary recipes is true throughout the entire period that I study. And while there are collections of solely uh, culinary recipes, most are a combination of medical and culinary. Some manuscript cookbooks are a collection as small as about 10 culinary recipes uh, bound in a book with lots of other texts. And others are collections of hundreds of recipes. Some print cookbooks are combinations of recipes, tips for raising livestock, advice on cultivating a garden, and other 17th century examples are tomes several hundred pages long by professional chefs and richly illustrated. So it definitely varies. So cookbooks have been around since Greek and Roman antiquity, but very little exists from this period. So the Middle Ages, particularly the late 13th century, is the first time we see a more concerted effort to record culinary recipes. Recipe collections don't always have titles at this time as well, although many are related to one another. And many cookbooks are copies of variations of the same recipes. A couple late medieval titled collections are, are Utilis Coquinario and The Form of Curry. So some of the manuscript cookbooks I will talk about today I refer to by their manuscript number instead of a more normal title. 
Most scholars have argued that these medieval cookbooks were not used in kitchens, that they were used solely as aid memoirs for high-ranking staff, like a steward or maitre d'hote, to plan menus for entertainments, uh, or even as a historical record uh, for a major feasting event. For example, Stephen Menel states, it may be that the rare written recipes were intended as little more than a memoir for literate and high-ranking superintendents of kitchens, while the people who did the actual cooking were expected to know by training and experience the appropriate quantities of the various ingredients. Terence Scully is even more forceful in his assertion. A recipe collection was compiled in manuscript not for the cook in a noble or bourgeois household, but for the master or mistress of that household. It served to document certain standards of an elite class. Occasionally revised with additions, deletions, and modifications, occasionally copied with the approval of the master or mistress in order to please a flattering friend or relative. A manuscript collection of recipes reposed in the household library, not in its kitchen. With only the odd exception, these books are in good, clean condition a tribute, if not to the intrinsic value of the data they contain, at least to the cost of the material and labor that went into their making. While this is true for some copies, many manuscripts were most certainly used in a kitchen, present for culinary activity, or sometimes used for other purposes altogether. Many manuscripts show significant signs of wear and tear. They're not in good, clean condition at all. They have stains, burns, folds, tears, holes, and notes, and some combination of all of this. And it's worth briefly noting here, for anyone not familiar with medieval manuscripts, why is such a concern with marks of wear on a manuscript? Well, there were many levels of quality of manuscripts. Some were relatively inexpensive. Others were wildly extravagant. And in all instances, the materials and labor took much more cost and labor than most modern counterparts. A book was bound together by hand, by folding, trimming, and sewing prepared parchment together. Parchment was a labor-intensive undertaking created from the skins of cow, sheep, and goat. Ink had to be mixed by hand, and writing on parchment was not always an easy undertaking. Erasing even a simple mistake meant carefully scraping away a very thin layer of parchment with a blade. And any illustrations were costly, as this artist was yet another craftsman separate from the scribe. And if you had any gold leaf, that was an additional expense and series of labors. So the preparation of a simple or a complex book, especially a cookbook, involved many artisans, many labors, and many levels of expense. That any manuscript might be sullied through ordinary use was unthinkable until fairly recently. And now it's much more widely accepted that a whole series of practical manuscripts, technical manuscripts, and notebooks were created for day-to-day use of craftsmen, artisans, and literate persons requiring a written aid to a hands-on task. So we finally turn toward the array of medieval manuscript cookbooks. There are a few different categories, which I'll address today, and show you very specific examples. These include aid memoirs, records for large households, instructional texts, and aspirational texts. I've already briefly mentioned aid memoir, or memory aids, but I'd like to throw a wrench in this category. The rest of the cookbooks you'll see today are in the form of a codex, um, the form of a book you're very familiar with seeing now. However, a few exist as roles. Uh, I argue in my research that all of these roles were very practical memory aids used inside the kitchen. Roll cookbooks are exclusively medieval, and only three copies are extant. Um, Here they are. Two are English, and one is a French cookbook. And there are references to other copies and manuscript catalogs, which were probably destroyed at some point during the past century, probably in World War II. The two English copies are of the form of curry. This text, among the most famous and iconic of medieval cookbooks, was composed in association with the Royal House of England. Master cooks at the court of Richard II, notably with the assistance of the court physicians, composed the form of curry around 1390. Although only a few copies exist today, I believe this form was more frequently used for cookbooks. Now why? It was considered a practical form in the Middle Ages, akin to a pocket reference text. It could hang on the wall or from one's belt. The roll was flexible and a fluid form. With no pages to turn, a reader simply unrolled the portion of text he needed. 
He could keep rolling or unrolling to look at more of the text, and the action was easy and continuous. Without a binding, the roll was lightweight and could be flexed into a variety of positions on a table or a wall or held in a hand. And additionally, the roll was an economical choice for texts, as it lacked choirs and binding and was typically undecorated. Without the cost of additional labor or materials, uh, the roll was a relatively inexpensive form for practical texts. Uh, you could unroll to a recipe and hold in, a place, hold in place with a bowl, utensil, etc. And there are creases indicative of being flattened while rolled up. Um, uh, there are stains and damage on the interior of extant rolls which show this. And you can kind of see this, uh, not too well on the PowerPoint, um, like right here, this is actually a big fold. Uh, and you see continuously when you see the whole roll that um, there are uh, corresponding crease marks in other parts of the roll, so you know it was flattened in certain areas. As a more specific example of this wear, the two roll copies of the form of curry also show signs of significant use. Uh, additional 5016, uh, contains innumerable tears, and the roll has been extensively restored by the library it's in. Uh, the ink and the parchment are faded throughout, and only small patches remain vibrant. Some of these patches appear to be oil-based stains, which have kept the parchment hydrated, and consequently, the ink and parchment more vibrant. The 15th century roll, Buhler 36, is in poor condition. Chunks of parchment are actually missing from the edges of the first leaves of the roll, and although the stability of the parchment improves the farther inside the roll you go, there are stains in the 120s of the recipe numbering. Additionally, the red ink is in such an unstable condition that the library has a warning with the roll to use caution um, because the ink flakes off so much. Now, before you tell me, yeah, right, Sarah, there's no way that a 10 or 15 foot or even more roll was at all practical in a kitchen setting. So I want to show you a modern usage for a roll in the 20th century. As a way to control large volumes of data in a dangerous, high-pressure situation in which information needed to be quickly and efficiently used, navigational maps in World War I fighter, fighter planes were issued in roll form. They were hung in the cockpit wall or around the pilot's neck. So if this was not the most efficient way at the time to gather so much written information and use it quickly, why would it be used? So I argue that roll copies were most likely used as a very practical aid memoir in the kitchen setting. Another category of manuscript cookbooks are records for households. And while this category is less the case for English books, I want to include it here and show you some continental examples. There are so many, uh, excuse me, they are so different from the other types of cookbooks I'm talking about today. And these are a very valuable category. Medieval French cookbooks usually fall into this category. Dufay de Cuisine is one very famous example. Written in 1420, it's a mostly pristine manuscript that shows no significant signs of use. Rather, it looks like a document filed away for safekeeping. The scribe and author contribute prologues with critical information about the manuscript's production and intent. Additionally, the author provides not only recipes, but documentation about menus, equipment, and more necessary for noble feasting, a common expression of power and authority in the Middle Ages. Composed with a sense of purpose and historical importance, uh, De Fede Cuisine and otherwise French texts opens in Latin. Uh, oh, sorry, this is a picture of the manuscript. Man's unretentive memory often reduces clear things to doubt. The foresight of worthy ancients therefore determined that ephemeral things should be rendered immortal by being written down, so that whatever the feebleness of the human mind cannot retain might survive by means of immutable writings. In order, therefore, that people in the present as well as those of future generations may know with certainty, the following is written down. Let's go back to that image here. The following index is orderly and correct, and often cookery indices are not, uh, and they hint at the culinary richness inside. 
uh, for the author, Master Shikar has compiled a list of provisions necessary for a grand feast, including food such as 100 small piglets for roasting, 100 calves, 2,000 head of poultry, and 6,000 eggs per day of a banquet, among many other animals, spices, and fish. He lists equipment, such as a supply of large cauldrons for boiling and stewing, 20 large frying pans, and 62 handled pots. And he also details the staff needed. The recipes follow that, emphasizing richness, power, and status. These recipes provide great description, but not necessarily the type of information required for learning how to cook the dishes or recreate them in any sort of meaningful way. So I want to share with you just one recipe here for a castle entremet. And entremets were food show pieces, which, were also, inc which also included performance and spectacle, whether it was theater, music, or pyrotechnics. This example provided a delightful description, but no actual instruction. Each aspect, however, is filled with metaphor and symbols and a concern with the display of wealth in the public setting of a banquet. So um, just bear with me. Uh, it's really entertaining, I promise. Uh, for a raised entremet, that is a castle. For its base, you need a good big four-man litter, and on that litter, you need four towers set at each of its corners. In every tower, there must be archers and crossbowmen to defend that fortress. Furthermore, in every tower, there will be a candle or torch to give light. The towers will show branches bearing flowers and fruit of every sort of tree, and upon those branches will be birds of every variety. In the courtyard at the foot of each tower, there will be what, there will be what follows. At one of the towers, a boar's head, emblazoned and glazed, breathing fire. At another tower, a large pike. That pike will be cooked in three ways, the one-third at the tail, fried, the one-third in the middle, boiled, and the one-third at the head, roasted on the grill. That pike will be placed at the foot of the next tower, looking out, its mouth breathing fire. At the foot of the next tower, a glazed piglet looking out and breathing fire, and at the foot of the last tower, a skinned and redressed swan, likewise breathing fire. And in the center of the courtyard below, there are four towers. Uh, below the four towers, there should be a fountain of love. Through a spout, there should gush rose water and mulled wine. And over that fountain should be set cages holding doves and every sort of flying bird. Alongside the fountain should be a peacock, with, has, which has been skinned and redressed. At the crenels around that courtyard, there should be hens, skinned, redressed, and glazed, and glazed hedgehogs. Of molded meat paste, make all the castle's curtain walls, which will go all around the castle. Hidden inside the curtain walls, there should be three or four youths playing very well on a rebeck, lute, and psaltery and a harp. And they should also have good voices and be singing harmonious, sweet, and pleasant songs in such a way that they will really seem to be sea sirens for the clarity of their singing. So as you can see here in this description, there's no real instructions for how to do anything, but it's this wonderful description of uh, a both an edible, sh partly edible showpiece mixed with performance and entertainment. It would be something that all of the guests at a great feast would be watching at one time. Other French cookbooks like the Viandier of Taivant and Le Menager de Paris occasionally share this sort of extravagance. And while we know that the English prepared entremets just like this uh, and created grand feasts as well and also documented important feasting events in other texts, they did not include this sort of entremet detail in their cookbooks. So we turn here into another category, instructional cookbooks. Any cookbook can potentially be instructional, but some manuscripts in the 15th century actually show marginal indications that they were used as a way for cooks to learn and use the recipes. Since it was believed for so long that medieval cookbooks were not actually used for transmitting practical kitchen instruction, I believe this ca category is a particularly important one. So I will show you one example here, which is especially rich in marginal notations. One manuscript at the British Library, Sloan 1108, is a small portable book which fits very comfortably in the hand, yet the script is large enough for easy reading. It contains 150 recipes, offering the reader many culinary options, but it's not overwhelmingly voluminous. The manuscript does not contain any decoration contemporary to the recipes, 
and the text is written almost exclusively in black ink, with the exception of some rubrication, this red lettering you occasionally see here. Both features indicate that the cookery was intended as a practical text and not prohibitively expensive to produce. Several people made marginal notes indicating that the cookbook was used as a cooking reference. One hand added additional instructions and comments throughout the cookery. For example, they noted, among many other clarifications, quote, and take sugar a good quantity and cast thereto, end quote, following run recipe. He also clarified at the end of another recipe that the meat may be served less or in a dish, meaning that the meat may be sliced or served in a dish. The hand also specified uh, after another recipe that the recipe components are together in a fair dish. This exacting cook also clarified ingredients. In one instance, the cook clarified that a recipe for rabbit or duck was a suitable preparation for a hen. In two other instances, the cook wrote chicken next to two recipes for poussin, or young chicken, perhaps formally categorizing the poussin as a type of chicken or indicating that an older chicken could be used instead of a younger bird. Another hand commented, make small, next to the recipe titled Darials. The manuscript exhibits other marks that are highly suggestive of use inside a kitchen. The top edges of the paper of the cookery are slightly singed, uh, burned dark brown and black, perhaps after an encounter with a small kitchen fire. The manuscript, like many, contains ink stains, but also includes two which appear to be food stains. One small stain appears oil or fat-based as it readily soaked through to the other side and darkened the paper. Neither destroyed the cookery or significantly damaged the writing in any way. And Sloan 1108 is just one example. You can find smaller selections of the same sorts of comments in many contemporary cookbooks. And this indicates that at least some of these books were used for instructing people how to prepare the culinary recipes found within the pages. Uh, this was the, um, this is early 15th century, um, 1410s, 14 teens. Um, so a final category of medieval cookbooks are those I categorize as aspirational literature. These cookbooks are found within professional manuscripts, that is, those definitively tied to practitioners in the medical or legal professions, or sometimes merchants. As these professionals found themselves in a rising social class and one which regularly fraternized with their social superiors, these readers used the text to familiarize themselves with what had been served to the nobility as a way to fit in and excel in a new social environment. Recipes were a vehicle for shaping a group's new identity. Manuscripts owned by medical professionals, particularly physicians and surgeons, are the most prolific of these. There are strong ties between medieval medicine and diet to begin with, so it's not surprising to find scattered culinary recipes in medical recipe collections. It is surprising, however, to find entire collections of culinary recipes inserted into manuscripts with texts on surgery, bloodletting, urinalysis, creating simples or medications, and charms. The largest group of these I have examined are 12 manuscripts at the British Library owned by 15th century medical professionals which contain cookbooks. These manuscripts containing cookeries also share an interesting variety of texts. Many are similar or identical medical texts. And these are images from the actual manuscripts. Uh, these texts include urinalysis tracts. Um, these are charts to help you analyze someone's urine so you know what illness they have or what humoral imbalance they have. Uh, Bloodletting tracts. Um, anatomy texts. Surgical treatises. Yeah, that, that's for, uh, these are for uh, surgery on anal fistula. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, but that one shows up over and over in these texts. <laughs> um, you also see more of these anatomical drawings. You see agricultural texts, especially grape growing and grafting, and texts about plants called herbals. And this level of similarity between the manuscripts is key. It suggests that these texts were being transmitted together within a small professional circle. Certain medical and non-medical topics and texts were considered part of a common body of knowledge among English medical professionals. 
This corpus included medical, agricultural, and culinary knowledge, indicating that certain activities and subjects were cultivated among physicians. Furthermore, cookeries found in manuscripts intended for professionals contained minimal markings. So in this regard, the cookery texts stand apart from the surrounding professional texts, which generally include notes, references, and other marginalia. As you see on this page, there, there's several notes inserted into the text, like here. Um, but when you actually look at the cookery text in the same manuscript as over here, you don't see uh, the same sort of notations going on. This imbalance indicates that cookeries contained in professional manuscripts were not generally used as guides for cooking. Instead, their purpose was to be read away from the kitchen. Rather than reading the recipes for instruction in detail, professionals would read recipes and be able to identify culinary trends, ingredients, and menus which were associated with the noble and royal class. Many medieval cookery recipes found in medical manuscripts contain ingredients which were difficult or impossible for non-nobles to acquire. There are, of course, recipes with completely ordinary ingredients. However, dishes featuring turbot, lamprey, porpoise, swan, peacock, crane, and heron are all included in uh, copies of Utilis Coquinario and the form of Curie, both which appear in multiple manuscripts in this group. Professionals could read recipes from certain cookbooks and be able to identify culinary trends, ingredients, and menus that were associated with the noble and royal class. And this should not seem unfamiliar to a modern audience. People today often purchase or borrow cookbooks they never use. And cookbooks from today's finest restaurant kitchens, an easy comparator to medieval royal kitchens, contain notoriously expensive and demanding dishes far beyond the scale of home cooks. Yet the images, the flavors, and processes keep consumers engaged in modern food culture and trends, whether or not they can actually reproduce restaurant dishes. Shared knowledge of these foodstuffs creates a sense of community among interested readers. Similarly, the non-noble professional audience owning these manuscripts would not necessarily have cooked the recipes. Rather, these cookeries would have familiarized readers with the types of foods appropriate to the social station to which they aspired. Professionals would not have had access to, the mo to most of the ingredients for meals, these meals within their households. However, if they dined at the court of a royal or noble patient or began to associate with local nobles, then they would have wanted to be familiar with these foods and how they were prepared in order to cultivate the manners and courtesy to properly consume their dinner. And in rare instances, the wealthiest physicians and surgeons might earn the substantial assets required to afford ingredients with an otherwise noble status. And if so, they were already familiar with the finest products to seek and the possible preparations that awaited them. The 16th century witnessed the rise of the printed cookbook. Just as the emerging professional class in 15th century England, the gentry of the following century continued to use manuscript and printed text to codify and disseminate group knowledge and behavior. These readers avidly collected and read household and husbandry texts. Cookbooks and other recipe books were an important component of libraries as they served as guides to living in accordance with one's status. Servants and grand households also benefited from such instruction. The audience of noble and professional readers, which had been growing over the course of two centuries, coalesced into a ready group of consumers by the advent of print. Rather than creating a new audience, the printing press fed an existing hunger for cookeries. And at first, print simply increased the quantity of cookbooks available to readers. The printing press did not immediately result in cookeries in the hands of new consumers. Printers did not even attempt to print original cookbooks. Rather, the first printed English recipes had already circulated in manuscript form. The same noble, gentry, and professional readers were the intended audience for the earliest print cookeries in England. The first English vernacular cookery printed in 1500 by Richard Penson, was printed in 1500 by Richard Penson, as well as its two subsequent editions, were all originally circulated in manuscript form. Other than its nature as a printed book, the book of cookery is very much a typical medieval cookery. The appearance of the text mirrors many 15th century manuscript cookbooks. The black Gothic typeface looks more like a handwritten script than a printed text. The book also mim mimics the size of its predecessors. 
And just as several late medieval cookbooks included feasting menus as part of a text, the book of cookery begins not with recipes, but with the menus of several 14th and 15th century noble feasts, including one hosted by Henry IV, uh, a coronation feast of Henry V, the feast of the Earl of Huntingdon at Calais, a feast held for the King of London by the Earl of Warwick, and, and even more. The 275 recipes reflect dishes similar to late medieval nobles, uh, noble dishes like bacchanade, leche lombard, uh, uh, eels and bruet, and sauce camelin. Dishes abound for the Lenten fast, a designation in cookbooks common uh, in the Middle Ages, and the recipes are filled with high-status birds and fish fit for noble tables. And while I've been referring to this cookbook as the Book of Cookery, it's actually untitled. Its first line, uh, from which medieval titles are often drawn, is actually, Here beginneth a noble book of uh, feasts royal and cookery, a book for a prince's household or any other estates. So you can see why everyone shortens it to book of cookery. Um, This indicates it was intended for a higher class of reader in England. And this book was also sold for around two shillings, the equivalent of four days wages for a master craftsman. So this book was expensive, though still more affordable than manuscript cookbooks. I found indications in booksellers' records that later editions of this book were sold at lower prices, so it did become increasingly more affordable. English readers had to wait all the way until 1545 for a brand new cookbook. This anonymous cookery, a proper new book of cookery, was popular enough to warrant seven editions from 1545 to the 1570s by six separate printers. The first edition was indeed a very different cookbook than Pinson's Book of Cookery. Most notably, the cookbook is smaller than its predecessor. It also contains a relatively new feature, a title page. The title touts an intended audience, for all them that delighteth in cookery. All the way down here. (laughs) Unlike the readership of the Book of Cookery or many earlier manuscript cookbooks, the audience was not restricted to nobles or those aspiring to that class. Anyone who took pleasure at the table could benefit from the book. In a rather dramatic turn from earlier cookbooks, the recipes in this book feature practical and acquirable foodstuffs and preparations fit for everyday dining in a gentry household. Gone are dishes that filled 15th century cookbooks. Now the reader meets recipes for snow, stewed tripe, tarts of all varieties, and several mutton recipes. A proper new book of cookery also departs from its predecessors in its instructions. The recipes contain more detail, such as ingredient quantities, uh, which we take for granted today. So for example, in a recipe for making clear jelly, the reader is instructed to take two calves feet and a shoulder of veal and let it upon the fire in a fair pot with a gallon of water and a gallon of claret wine. So we have lots of specifications here that we would never get in earlier recipes. Also, even clarifying what type of wine and what type of pot and what type of ingredients to use. And just as gentlemen and professionals owned cookeries long before the text specifically addressed the needs of their class, women owned cookbooks long before they were targeted as consumers. For example, Margaret Parker, the wife of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Matthew Parker, owned a copy of a proper new book of cookery printed in approximately 1558. After a century of print, English printers began producing cookbooks for women in the 1570s. After the initial printing of John Partridge's The Treasury of Commodious Conceits in 1573, a text subtitled The Housewife's Closet of Healthful Provision, printers then began producing a surge of cookbooks for women. Uh, Printers and authors identified women as the main consumers of the genre and would continue to do so until the present day. 23 editions of six women's cookbooks were printed from 1573 to 1600. 34 editions of eight different books were printed from 1573 to 1609. And an overwhelmingly majority of all printed cookbooks were printed for female readers beginning in 1580. Authors, printers, and booksellers were still targeting the the gentry, but book producers viewed gentlewomen particularly those emulating noble dining and homekeeping practices 
as the most likely consumers of this exploding genre. Oh, sorry, I forgot I put this table in. So uh, you can see the percentage numbers here, how rapidly that increased, uh, the percentage of all cookbooks printed for women as you go decade, decade by decade through this. So what designated a cookbook as one specifically for women? There are several possible features we find in these books. First, the cookery titles include mention of women, indicating housewives or widows, gentlewomen or ladies. Examples of titles include The Widow's Treasure, The Good Housewife's Jewel, The Good Housewife's Treasury, The Good Housewife's Handmade for the Kitchen, and Delights for Ladies. Uh, second, women were identified as the inspiration or source of the book. And this might be in um, a preface or dedicatory materials, um, and sometimes in attributions of recipes to specific women, um, such as one recipe in The Good Housewife's Handmade for the Kitchen, uh, one's attributed to a Mistress Duffeld, and another to Lady Weston Brown's way. Um, third, the book includes confectionery recipes. And confectionery was a broad category, uh, all united by um, their base in sugar. So marshpan or marzipan, fruit, preserves, marmalade, cakes, biscuits, lozenges, conserves, and comfies all fell under this broad classification. And although sugar had been imported into England for centuries, it became increasingly popular throughout the 16th century. Uh, but it did remain costly. So gentlewomen had the resources to partake in the majority of household confectionery making. But even housewives of the lower gentry and middling class undertook some fruit preservation, particularly when their own gardens yielded the fruit. Marmalade, for example, would serve as a method of food preservation for some housewives, but on the most refined banquet tables, stiff marmalade could be molded into features on elaborate sugar displays. Um, four, culinary recipes were placed in the context of entertaining guests. Some books uh, included menus. Um, others contained uh, lists of items necessary for preparing, uh, preparing a banquet uh, or specific entertaining dishes. Some confectionery preparations uh, were similarly highlighted as amusing or interesting to guests at the table. So we have here a recipe for sugar paste, which began circulating in England in the second half of the 16th century. Um, and we see this appearing in several different cookbooks, word for word, this, this exact text, word for word. Um, it was quite popular among gentry diners in Elizabethan England. And... Uh, yeah, over the course of 50 years, you see it appearing over and over again. Um, and finally, the recipes included more detail and were also composed uh, in lucid and simple prose. Unlike most late medieval recipes, the amounts or proportions of ingredients, kitchen equipment, and other details were often provided. And in these books, cooks were instructed to cut carrots into inch-long pieces for boiled mutton and use manchette, um, a type of bread, rather than just any other bread in some recipes. Uh, one's told to put salt in fair running water, boil it until it bear an egg, an indication of buoyancy and salt levels used in culinary parlance well into the 20th century. In a recipe for making white broth, the reader is instructed to use a long marrow bone cut long ways. Um, and we have these sorts of specifications appearing regularly. And I'll also add here that although this wasn't necessarily a feature indicating that it was a woman's cookbook, these late 16th century cookbooks were the first to be quite attractively laid out. They were not illustrated in such a way that illuminated cooking instructions um, or even showed table settings or banqueting designs, but many were attractively bordered with jewel patterns like you see in both of these examples. Um, they had legible typesetting, and uh, they printed flourishes to distinguish sections of text from one another. Now, throughout the 17th century, the genre of cookbooks saw a sampling of everything. Manuscript, print, volumes of radically different sizes, and a swath of varying types of recipes, authors, and audiences. A great divergence emerged at this time um, between books by professional chefs and books for housewives. Uh, and some of these being by women and some not. While surprisingly few manuscript cookbooks and recipe collections survive from the 16th century, the 17th century produced uh, an amazing revival of handwritten recipes. 
uh, primarily in the form of recipe books, a category of cookbooks primarily produced by and for women of many socioeconomic levels to be passed down through generations and gifted between friends. Hundreds of these examples survive today. Uh, some of the larger tomes by chefs were translations of French cookbooks, while others were distinctly English. The culinary landscape was changing radically in Europe around 1650, as the French chef La Varenne, uh, his cookbook was transforming the way everyone saw French cuisine. A 1653 translation of Varenne's cookbook was popular in England, as was a 1654 compilation of recipes from the translation. Um, and this book, The Complete Cook, was printed in 16 different editions over the next 40 years. Um, we see other French cookbooks, like The French Gardener, following closely behind. And English chefs fired back, though, uh, and Robert May printed The Accomplished Cook in 1660, while William Rabisha published The Whole Body of Cookery in 1661. And these two cookbooks were really the pinnacle of chef-authored English cookbooks until the 18th century. Robert May's book, in particular, is a wonderful example of an illustrated cookbook from this period. It contains numerous drawings of the decorations on pies and tarts and how various shapes, particularly animal forms, could be molded out of food. While these drawings might seem rudimentary today, these were an early example of images accompanying text. These were not merely decorative illustrations like the jeweled borders, but instructional diagrams. Now, women were viewed as a powerful consumer force by cookbook printers throughout this whole century. Um, and the whole notion of housewife was new at the time, having developed in the 16th century in England. And women were seen as domestic managers who had to run a tight ship, whether or not they had a large or small staff or household. And this term and this view of women spread across the entire social spectrum. While this title and designation gained more widespread use, so too did the duties of women covered in printed books. Notably, numerous books directed at this audience were authored by a woman, Hannah Woolley. Although her career as an author was pretty brief, lasting approximately 10 to 15 years, she wrote at least five cookbooks and household guides. A dramatic increase of cookbooks, a cookbook printing of all types occurred following the English Civil War in the mid-17th century. Some scholars have posited that this bump occurred, during, uh, bump occurred due to the high number of professional cooks out of work previously employed by aristocratic households. I suspect that played a big role, but I think that a more thorough analysis is necessary, particularly one that accounts for the rise in recipe books circulated among women. Now these recipe books, painstakingly copied by mothers, daughters, friends, neighbors, and sometimes as handwriting exercises by young girls learning to write, they come in all varieties. Some recipes are completely original. Others are copied from contemporary printed books. Often the sources are attributed in the margins, um, as we see here. Um, the recipes are all here, but we have specific attributions throughout. Um, these are from Lady Anne Percy's recipe book, now held at the New York Public Library. And here we see a few more images from other 17th century recipe books. Um, these all happen to be at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, DC. And we can see in occasional inscriptions, as in Lady Anne's book, um, after her death in 1654, her husband conserved the receipt book in his family's library, noting inside the manuscript, these receipts are writ in my dear wife's, the Lady Anne Percy's own hand, and have been long kept as secrets in the Northumberland family. So these book hi books highlight, uh, in a more traceable way, the sorts of recipe sharing and the social aspects of culinary life, which had already been present in English cookbooks for hundreds of years. So to conclude, I hope you have enjoyed this brief trip through the early centuries of the English cookbook genre. Uh, there is enormous variation and a rather timeless fluidity of text. And while we can learn so much about past cultures from these cookbooks, I hope you will agree that cookbooks have not changed quite so much, and the same goals, aspirations, and relationships reflected in today's books have been there for many, many years. Thank you. Um, Scott, can I do one quick plug before taking questions? Thank you. 
this is so I can get paid. Um, I'm teaching uh, this summer uh, a course at the Newberry Library. I teach a few a year. And um, this one is on the culture of food in medieval and renaissance Europe. And uh, I have flyers. If you come see me afterwards, I can give you one. And it has all this and some more information on it. Um, I, am, I encourage you, if you're interested in this topic, to sign up. Um, this is actually the first time that I've not been meeting my enrollment numbers. Um, so if you're interested and want to sign up this week, that would ensure the class will actually take place. So... Uh, I think early registration is $185. So I know it's a bit steep, but um, the Newberry does things in a very classy way over there. So, yeah. So thank you. Um, questions? <laughs> there, there are a couple early examples of um, antique uh, Roman texts that were circulated um, in monastery scriptoriums, but um, there are actually surprisingly few cookbooks used that, that are extant today um, used in monasteries. And that's, um, we, we don't have those examples for English uh, cookbooks or continental cookbooks as far as I know. There, there are a couple that were copied by monasteries uh, in the ninth century that, that we have today, but uh, beyond that, um, it wasn't really monasteries that were circulating these. Um, I don't know of any records of explorers bringing cookbooks with them. Um, the first cookbook uh, in English that was printed here uh, was a later edition of a, um, an 18th century uh, English cookbook, and I'm not recalling the name right now. It'll probably come to me in a little bit. Um, but it was simply a copy of one that already existed in England. Uh, oh, shoot. I'm sorry, I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> um, um, but in terms of handwritten recipe books, there are plenty of early American examples that we have from the 17th century um, that are in collections and in American collections today that were actually copied here in America by colonists. Um, but uh, usually these can trace very easily back to continental and English recipes that they were already familiar with or may have brought with them uh, over. So... Uh, there are occasional references to rotting food and how you can get rid of rotting portions of food, but that's pretty rare in these cookbooks. Um, there, there's a common misconception that uh, people dealt with a lot of bad food in the Middle Ages, that people were purchasing rotting meats or um, or bad food from vendors, and that simply wasn't the case. There were very strict food laws um, particularly in England, but around all of Europe, um, that really enforced um, that good food was being sold to people. Uh, and food vendors could be um, sent to jail uh, or fined very heavily for violating any of these rules. I've looked at a lot on bakers, for example, and bakers that were selling bad bread, um, they could be fined, they could be sentenced to the pillory, they could be uh, jailed, um, and in the worst instances, uh, they wouldn't be able to bake anymore for the rest of their life. So um, there are pretty heavy penalties for selling bad food items. Yeah, so in dietaries, which are closely related to cookbooks, but not quite the same things, um, you, you have those very explicit instructions on what to eat for what problems you had. Um, so medical practice was governed by humoral theory. Your body had to be balanced between all these different humors. And the way you balanced it one way you balanced it was by eating foods that could balance those humors. Um, so dietaries went into great detail to tell you what you needed to consume to fix any problem you had. Yeah, you see, you see traces of humoral theory into, into 18th century and early 19th century cookbooks even. Sure. How did I gain access to some of these early cookbooks? Um, well, I, I showed up at libraries and asked to see them. <laughs> Sometimes you do, sometimes you have to register in advance, but um, uh, 
like when I was doing a lot of my dissertation research, uh, if, if there were more restrictive libraries, I had a letters from my advisor and people on my committee who um, all wrote letters attesting that I was uh, an okay stand-up person and wasn't going to steal anything from the manuscripts or try to take anything away. So, oh yeah, yeah, every manuscript collection, every library archive has an invigilator. They have a special name um, and you're watched and um, you, yeah, anytime you go take a break, generally you give the book back and um, there, there are lots of rules. Every library has their own rules, so. Yeah. No, there's not really a period of time, a specific period in which um, quantities and specifications were necessarily added to all recipes. And unfortunately, that happened at different times with different cookbooks and different authors. Um, but you do start seeing it, um, it especially clearly in some 17th century cookbooks. Um, you don't start seeing the breakdown of ingredients prior to the actual recipes until the 20th century. That is a very late advancement in, in cookbooks. So there have been some attempts, and now there are even some more serious ones. Uh, have there been attempts to, um, to uh, codify or quantify all these different recipes um, and all this information in one way or another um, online, presumably, um, hopefully eventually. Um, yeah, so there one attempt that's already up and running is um, Barbara Wheaton's The Cook's Oracle, which is a searchable database online. Um, and that that deals with a wide variety of manuscript and print cookbooks, um, but not, not everything. Um, <laughs> I mean, she's one person that's really done extraordinary, extraordinary work. Um, but there's actually a team of researchers in Europe who are now working on an online database. Um, and they are trying to do all cookbooks all over Europe, I don't know how long this is gonna take, but um, putting all the recipes online so that they're all searchable um, and you can, you can do all this um, data analysis, statistical analysis, quantification, everything with, with the information. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Um, and sometimes it was um, the, the skin and feathers of the same bird that would be placed on the bird. Sometimes um, like a swan might be replaced with a goose, for example, and then put in the, um, the, the swan's dressing. Um, so then it looks like a bird, but it's edible inside. <laughs> there, there are instructions for exactly how to do this in um, the cookbook called The Viandier of Taiwan, um, a French medieval text, and it goes through relatively, in a relatively detailed manner, how to actually accomplish this, so. Yeah, I mean, these are really pretty intense show pieces. The, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how much eating was going on of those particular items, but I mean, that showed how much wealth you had that you could have one of these birds roasted and you were just using the feathers from them in this way, so. I think that um, the spit cake that I tried, um, I'm not sure if I included an image of that. Um, you wrapped nuts and dried fruits on a string, uh, wrapped it around a spit, and then dripped a batter over it. Yeah, okay, so this is the, this is the final product up here. Um, because after you create the whole spit cake um, and it's cooked, you slice it up into small pieces, and so they're small rounds. Um, and that ended up being incredibly tasty, but I can't replicate that at home at all. I don't have a spit or open hearth at home, not even close. Spit cakes, they, they actually, you, you find them in um, even 19th and 20th century, very early 20th century cookbooks. Um, so those stuck around for a really long time, um, made in a pretty similar way. I haven't looked at the dietaries nearly as much. No in the cookbooks. Um, so I, I can tell you in, in several of these earlier cookbooks, there are sections of recipes that are called sick dishes. 
Um, and it might be a small section, it might be a large one, um, but these are recipes that are specifically intended for people who are ill or invalids um, or just needed really bland food for a little while. And um, blancmange, which during the medieval period was um, a, a pretty well-known dish that involved chicken, rice, um, almond milk, um, yeah, and a couple other ingredients, but it wasn't really a, a flavorful dish. And then over centuries, it turned into a dessert. But at this time, it was a, a savory item that could appear on regular feasting tables, but was also an invalid or sick dish. So there are there are some collections of recipes like that, but um, not for losing weight that I know of, or gaining weight for that matter. Stratified by by expense. Um, so Robert May's text, um, it was a huge, wonderful cookbook that was quite popular, but it really was popular among wealthier readers. It's not like an average housewife was necessarily running out to get that um, just because it was more expensive and the recipes were more expensive to produce. Um, but it was a very well-known cookbook and the recipes were seen as very English as opposed to all these French recipes um, that had come in the decades before. So um, you do start seeing that later um, in the 18th and 19th centuries, but in, in this particular period, that it's still a bit too early to make those sorts of, of claims. There, so there weren't restaurants as we know them, but there were plenty of, kind of fast food restaurants where you could grab things on the go. Those were quite common throughout the entire Middle Ages and even as far back into antiquity um, that, that you could grab meat pies, for example, and take them to go. Um, that, was, that was extremely common. Well, taverns you could go to and have alcohol, um, but there were plenty of freestanding fast food places. Um, that, to my knowledge, didn't sell um, any ale or anything. Um, so there were plenty of guilds for different food professions. Um, you don't see cooks' guilds in the Middle Ages, at least in England. Um, I think that's an early modern um, occurrence, and I don't know a date off the top of my head. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> We made a lot of pies <laughs> um, throughout the, the cooking course. We made meat pies and fish pies. Um, I, I liked the meat pies. The fish pies weren't really my thing just because I didn't like the combination of like salmon with dried fruits and nuts. To, to me, that's not a good combination. But all the other people in the class were British, and they really liked that. So, um, yeah, silly American. I, I didn't like that one. Um, we made mustard from scratch. That's that's what's going on down here. Um, this is a cannonball, uh, and yeah, crushing the the mustard seeds by hand. Um, we all took a turn at it, and it took a long time. Um, uh, we made almond milk. We made roasted meats. Um, we made different sauces. So just a variety of things that appear in a lot of different texts. Um, this was for three days. Uh, I don't remember what we were cooking here <laughs> in this particular pot, but um, I had the lovely job of stirring. I picked this one because you can really see all the soot flying around. Um, and the, oh, whoops, sorry. And this is Ivan Day, the um, the teacher of the course, um, and he's he's adding more wind to the fire to make it bigger. So that was blowing everything around. So you can really get a sense for how, how dangerous these might get. I had burned arm hairs like crazy after this class was over, so. Oh, like right there. Um, a, a, pleasant, um, a pleasant dish, a pleasant entertainment. Um, entertainment, yeah. Entertainment can be substituted a lot for conceit um, in these this period of text um, because entertainment was such an integral part of of dining. So um, yeah, that does appear all the time. Um, so entertainment, sometimes dish, sometimes confectionery. Um, it, it depends a lot on the context, but you, you're pretty pretty safe substituting entertainment there. 
So. so the cookbooks do emphasize proteins heavily, very heavily. Um, and people did eat fruits and vegetables. It wasn't like they didn't eat them at all. Um, but salads of all types and, and fruit and vegetable dishes, those weren't commonly recorded in these cookbooks until you get to um, really the 17th century. That's when you start seeing a lot more of them. But in the Middle Ages, um, uh, people were being served some vegetable dishes and vegetables were being incorporated into dishes, but that wasn't the bulk of what they were eating. It was a very protein-heavy diet for the wealthiest, and it was a very cereal-heavy diet for the poorest. Um, so for, for most people, um, you, you couldn't afford meat most of the time, so your, your diet was... There, there are different estimates. Somewhere between 60 to 80 or even 90% of your diet was cereals. Um, I mean, it's just an extraordinary amount. And that was through both bread and ale um, and porridges of different types. Um, but if you were wealthy and could afford it, uh, you were eating a protein-heavy diet. And that was split uh, between fast and feast days. It might be fish during fast days and meats uh, on feast days. You, you do see a ton of dried fruits being mentioned specifically in a lot of medieval recipes, um, Europe-wide. Um, so those were definitely being used, and surely fruits were being um, integrated into dishes where regionally and, and seasonally appropriate. Um, there's, a, there's a really great book by Christopher Wolgar, The, the Culture of Food in Medieval England, um, and it's a couple years old now, um, so still very new. Uh, but it goes through how to look at different historical documents and records to find um, evidence of these different foods that aren't popping up in cookbooks, for example. So there are lots of different mentions of people eating fruit, um, people eating seasonal produce, uh, and incorporating that in one way or another into their diet um, that, that are found in like coroner's records and inquisition records, um, uh, really unusual places to look for this sort of evidence. But we know people were definitely eating it. It's just not showing up really consistently in, in cookbook recipes. Um, not anything that in intensive. You see a heavy use of spices in medieval cookbooks throughout, throughout the entirety that these cookbooks are being produced, um, especially in the late Middle Ages. Um, what you can do is see a pretty significant decline of the use of spices from the Middle Ages to the early modern period, um, just because there was uh, a pretty radical decrease in um, the, the amounts that people were using in their cooking uh, from um, the 15th century into the 16th century and then definitely by the 17th. No, there's there's no way they there that is just not even a possibility. Spices were so expensive. You would not waste your your spices on hiding bad meat. You you wouldn't be buying bad meat if you could afford those types of spices. There there's no way. So um and and again, there are very strict rules about um selling meat and the quality of meat that you can sell. So <laughs> So I provided a whole bunch of modernized versions of recipes, and I wasn't sure until now what was actually being served from that. Um, so one of the things is Elizabeth Cromwell's uh, chicken salad, and this is an English um, 17th century recipe, um, and this title is exactly like the sort of thing you'd find in recipe books, um, something attributed to a specific person. Um, but uh, to me, it seemed like it was going to be a pretty typical chicken salad, like what we're used to today, maybe with different flavorings, like um, parsley and stuff like tarragon or something, but um, pretty, pretty typical flavors. Um, so we'll see what that ends up being like. And um, blanc mange, that chicken and rice with an almonds dish that I had mentioned. Um, so this is the savory version, and we'll see how that comes out. But um, great. I mean, it's it's very typical to a lot of chicken dishes, savory chicken dishes we're used to today. It's it's not the dessert version um, that that later rolls around. But yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>